So let's pray. We thank you, Lord God, for your word, um, your word made flesh, Jesus Christ, and your word, your holy scriptures. And we ask now that you would open up your scriptures to us and open up our hearts and our minds to your word, both your word spoken through scriptures and your word made flesh, um, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his name that we ask this. Amen. So I was saying last week um, that Hebrews itself why Hebrews? Why am I speaking about Hebrews? Well, um, I got to choose, and I did say that earlier. But when I was, and I said this last week, so if anybody's listening online, then they'll be disappointed because I already said it, but I know none of you were here last week, so I'll say it again. That when I was at Wheaton College, um, we had to go through in one of our New Testament classes and say what our favorite book of the Bible was. And having grown up in the Episcopal Church, the language, the sacrificial language, meant more to me, I think, than any of those other Protestants who were more, who are from Baptist or Presbyterian backgrounds, who experienced um, more tabernacle worship, where um, the main component of the worship was an hour-long sermon, and then there were little bits of liturgy on either side. But if you got the hour-long sermon and it was really bad theology, then you were in trouble because there's nothing else to this service. <laughs> and I was always thankful for the liturgy where the gospel so clearly laid out in the liturgy so that if you hear a sermon where you're like, oh, I don't know, is that it? you still, it doesn't detract from the worship. It doesn't add to the worship experience, but it doesn't detract from it either. And um, where the, the language of our communion service is so clearly about Jesus' sacrifice and his death on the cross, that language was such a part of my life from an early age that Hebrews made sense to me, I think, as much as it can make sense to anyone. But I really enjoyed it. So in this class, everybody goes around and says what their favorite book of the Bible was. And I kid you not that 95% of the people said Romans. And I was the only person who said Hebrews. And I said Hebrews, and everybody was like, Hebrews? We have never even read that book. Um, <laughs> but so essentially, we looked last week. We looked at <coughs> excuse me, the first two chapters of Hebrews. And we looked at who is it for? Who is this book written for? Well, first of all, you know, we don't know exactly who the author is. The author, the identity of the author remains a mystery to us. We can, we can you know, hypothesize and say, well, um, his theology is very similar to Paul's, but I would say that's because he's a Christian, or he is like this. Um, we know that he wasn't an eyewitness to Jesus because of some things that he says in the actual content of the book. Um, but we don't know exactly who he is. He probably wasn't Paul, though. And I said last week, you, when you compare the actual language in the Greek to Paul's letters, the language is different. Paul has a strong rhetoric, but his Greek grammar is not as sophisticated as this writer. This writer, when you try to read Hebrews in the Greek, most people agree that it's the hardest book in the New Testament to read in the Greek, second only to Luke and Acts, which Luke had really good grammar very well educated, and Hebrews is even more so. So we, we don't know who it is, but we do know that this person was writing before, a, um, after A.D. 70. And do you remember what the big event is in Palestine in A.D. 70? This is not a trick question. The answer isn't Jesus, like most Sunday school <laughs> questions. But, um, <clears throat> that's right. It, it's the big identifying date in the first century. Um, 
other than the death of Jesus for us. But on the bigger screen picture, um, for, the, for, the Isra- for the Jews, that was hugely important because it meant when, um, when the Romans came to put down the Bar Kokhba rebellion um, that happened in the 60s, later 60s, they, they squashed it in the 70s. They came, they invaded Jerusalem, um, the legions came to Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And that was the end of tabernacle-style worship for the Jews. And it hasn't been brought back since then. Unlike when the temple was first destroyed. Remember that temple was destroyed upon their exile to Babylon. And then when they came back from Babylon, they rebuilt it. And then Herod augmented the rebuilding of the temple so that that was the temple in Jesus' day. So we know that the reason why we know that it was um, prior to the destruction of the temple is because the, the author talks about the tabernacle rite, the sacrifices in the temple, and he talks about them in the present tense as though they are still ongoing. He points to them. And if, it, and if they had been completely finished, it, it would have reflected, and we would have seen that in his language. Um, so finally, what is it? Well, who is this book written to and what is the content? What's the main argument to the book of Hebrews? Well, the who is that um, the people, we suspect that the people that this first author was writing to were tempted because of, because of persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ, that they were tempted to return to their faith, their Jewish faith. They were Jewish Christians. And, um, and what, we don't know if that persecution was coming at the hand of other Jews who were not believers in Jesus or if it was coming from the Romans or other Gentiles. But what we do know based on the argument in the book itself is that they, they were tempted to swear off believing in Jesus as a way of not going through this persecution. And so the argument in the book of Hebrews is tailored specifically because the mes- message is one, it's a twofold message. The consistent exhortation, and this book could be described rather than the other epistles that have this, um, this um, standard greeting. Remember Paul's standard greeting, grace and peace to you, and then the standard closing. This book is so interesting. It just begins right in with the theology. He just starts going, you know, long ago and far away, or no, long ago at many times. That sounds like a movie introduction, doesn't it? Forgive me, Lord, for comparing the beginning of a book of scripture to a movie um, beginning. But long ago, at many times and in many ways, is the way the book begins. So this is a different genre. It's slightly different than the epistles of Paul. And what it could be described as, this, it, the best way of describing it, I think, is this sermon, this extended exhortation this long sermon, but what's so beautiful about it is that his argument is so simplistic. He has one argument for 12 long chapters. You know, he just goes with that argument. Um, and he goes and he goes, and the argument builds, and he's not distracted from his argument the way Paul sometimes is. Paul sometimes goes down these bunny trails, and you think, okay, here we go, down the bunny trail, you're going to get back to the main argument. And Hebrews, the author to the Hebrews, he just keeps building to this big main argument. And um, the big main argument, essentially, is that Jesus Christ is the high priest of a better covenant, of a second covenant that supersedes the first covenant. And so the way he builds to this argument, the way he continually says this, is that he points to other aspects of the first covenant, and he says that Jesus is better than that aspect, that particular aspect. So in the first two chapters, he hones in on angels. Um, So maybe it might have been that um, people were in awe of angels in their glory and tempted to worship angels or worship the covenant given by angels. Because 
it was believed that the law on Mount Sinai was given to Moses through angels. The angels were the intermediary. The angels are messengers of the word of God. Certainly, we see that throughout scripture. Even just think of the New Testament angels that we know of with Mary, you know, Gabriel bringing that message of the birth of Jesus to Mary. Um, so angels are messengers of that first covenant, the, the deliverers of the message of the first covenant, especially in the first, testament, or first century mindset. So what the author to the Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is far more glorious than angels. You think that angels are amazing? Well, look at the sun. And he goes on to talk about the sun in chapters 1 and 2. And then in the chapters for today, chapters 3 and 4, he stops and he says, um, he goes on next to Moses. So you think that the, um, the, the, um, the servant of the first covenant, Moses, by whom that first covenant was given, was pretty amazing? Well, look at Jesus. And he talks specifically, he ends up looking finally at the results of these two leaders' um, leadership upon the people. We'll get to that today. But I want to look at the roadmap of the entire book because it's important to realize that this building argument that um, builds up and it basically um, reaches its high point and its climax in the chapters that um, Gil will speak on in two weeks, those chapters about Jesus as the great high priest of a better covenant. We'll look next week at Melchizedek and who Jesus is in relationship to this Old Testament priest who is also a king. Um, and then the week after that, at Jesus, the high, great high priest. And the, um, what is interspersed in this mounting argument of the superiority of Jesus, we have interspersed within that these exhortations. So in the midst of this glorious theology, there's also this practical um, exhortation that the, the author is giving to the Hebrews. And the content of the practical ex- exhortation is pretty simple. Namely, namely it is persevere. Don't fall away. Don't leave off on this. You have come to believe in Jesus Christ, and I'm showing you just how great he is, just how much better he is than the things that preceded him. Don't fall away. Don't give up. Don't give up even in the midst of persecution and suffering and trial. And that message is good for us today. You know, we might not be experiencing the loss of our um, property for believing in Jesus or um, the, the hardship that certainly peop- um, those first century Christians experienced or even Christians around the world. I think of the Christians in China who meet underground so that they can um, be preserved and, and be safe from the government. Um, I think of people in Arab countries where um, their lives are literally at stake for believing in Jesus. They're forbidden to own a Bible, forbidden to meet and pray together. Um, We are blessed to not be in that kind of situation. But as it is true for every single Christian, that there are any number of things that can um, nitpick at us uh, to try and get us to, to fall away, to say, it's just too hard to follow Jesus just too hard to keep on keeping on and being a Christian. There's that ever-present question, why bother? Why bother in the midst of the suffering and the trials of life? And the author to the letter of the Hebrews is saying, no, really, but you really want to bother. This is really important. And Jesus is greater and more glorious than um, all of those other 
all of those other aspects of the First Testament. So again, like I said, this exposition of Jesus' superiority, it's interspersed with these prolonged exhortations on Christian perseverance. And we'll get that. We saw there's a little tiny bit in chapter 2. And you don't have your Bible in front of you, so I'm going to just read it. In chapter 2, um, verse 2 and 3, it says, For since the message declared by angels, there are the angels, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribu- retribution. Here now is the exhortation to perseverance. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Persevere. And then in chapter 3, um, in chapter 3 and 4, what we're looking at today, what we'll see is that this is the first of the extended exhortations. We have this little exposition of Jesus and Moses in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3. And then that proceeds and is interpreted by and is accompanied by this exhortation from verse 7 of chapter 3 on through verse 13 of chapter 4. And this extended um, exhortation has to do directly with Moses. Because it's an exhortation based on the reaction of the Israelites to Moses' leadership in the desert. What happened in the desert? And how is that situation meant to spur Christians on to continued faith in Jesus Christ? Well, that's what we're looking at right now. Um, so I give you that roadmap of the book of Hebrews. Again, you'll see on the sheet that there are, and if you were to look at it at home, you'd see that in chapters 5, 11 through 6, 12, and then in 10, 19 through 39, there are these other extended exhortations that we, we might take a look at later on, but um, you'll know that they are there. And that roadmap of the argument and the interspersed exhortations helps us as we're reading, as we're setting out in this one little location. You know, I've been having to read a lot of maps as I'm here and trying to figure out how to get from one place to another. And I've discovered the hard way that I need to know where I'm going in the end before I begin my journey. Siri is wonderful and I trust her and she's almost always reliable, although I will say that the first time I was trying to get to the airport here, Siri took me to the cargo entrance and I was already running late for my flight. So I had to, um, I literally drove all the way around the perimeter of the airport at least once before actually finding my way in. And when I got in, they said, mm, no, you can't go to your flight. It's less than a half an hour before it takes off. So I just, but it was so, I wanted to throw that brand new iPhone across the car. I literally <laughs> wanted to, I was like, Siri? Um, so there's that, that um, this reading scripture, understanding this roadmap, knowing the end from the beginning is very helpful to us as we study the scripture and study individual books itself. So I'm just going to read those first six verses of chapter 3 because they're so important for understanding um, this comparison between Moses, that leader of the Israelites in the desert, um, that leader of them as they were brought out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, into the desert, as then the law was given through him, and then um, as they wandered in the wilderness and saw all these miraculous works of God, remember, not just the bringing out of Egypt and those miracles in Egypt that released them from bondage, then this, the, um, the parting of the Red Sea, um, then in the desert, the, then when Moses struck the rock and the water poured out, there was that great miracle of provision for water for thirsty people in the desert, then that other miraculous provision of bread when they were hungry, and then even more than just bread, they got meat in the wilderness. Uh, The quail came. God sent the quail to minister to his people to provide for their needs. Um, So all of those miraculous provisions, um, were these are the mighty works of God. 
that are talked about in chapters 3 and 4. Um, so looking at uh, chapter 3, I'm just going to read. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. You see those beautiful images. That image of, um, and I just put it down on your sheet, Moses versus Jesus. He's comparing them here. And throughout his argument of comparison, we talked about this last week, his argument of comparison, it's a tactic. His, his, his rhetorical tactic is to take something and say, how great was that? That was so great. And then say, well, this is even greater. And just as this was great, just as this is greater than this, so Jesus is greater than this. Just as the um, builder of the house is greater than the house, himself, the house itself, so Jesus is greater than Moses. Just as Moses is, um, and M- Moses is of the house itself. That's kind of the idea. Moses is a servant in the house. And, um, and Jesus, it says, okay, so faithful in all God's house. Yes, he was faithful, but he was in God's house. And that quote right there is straight out of Numbers 12, where it talks about... Um, it talks about Moses being faithful, and yet the people didn't believe in him. Um, and his own brother and sister, Miriam and Aaron, didn't believe in him. That's, this, that's that passage where Miriam is struck with leprosy for not believing in Moses, not um, trusting in her brother's leadership. Well, it's showing Moses is faithful in all God's house. And it's a direct quote of that, that passage from Numbers um, 12, 7. But then he compares that being faithful in the house. What is the house? Any thoughts about what the house is? Just, I just thought I'd turn it out. It's confusing, but take a gander. The church. That's really good. Almost. Because it's true. But we're talking, what's confusing about this passage, I think we're talking about two houses. Because he starts out talking about the house, the first, and I would say it's the houses of the two different covenants. The first house is the house of the people of Israel, the people of God, God's chosen people. Moses is faithful in all God's house, of all God's people. He's faithful. He's faithful in that house of Israel. And then, he talks about later, you're talking about that part where Jesus, where it says that Jesus, we are Jesus' house. It goes on to say that in the last verse, that verse 6. Um, so Jesus is um, over the house, over the first house, over Israel. He's the heir of the first house, right? Who is the son but the heir? Um, So he's contrasting in that phrase, Moses faithful in all God's house, Jesus faithful over God's house, Moses as a servant, Jesus as a son, and as he's the son, he's the heir of the promises that God made to Abraham. Remember the promises that all people of of the earth would be blessed through his offspring, through him? Jesus is the inheritor of that promise. 
Um, Jesus is the inheritor of all of the promises to um, Abraham, to Jacob. Um, he is the chosen one. And I've done this before, but I'll do it again. Um, I had this great professor in seminary. He used, I'm very spatial. I'm not, I'm special, but I'm spatial. <laughs> special, but I'm spatial. And uh, it's that, that juxtaposition of space. And if you know my theater background, uh, there's something about theater and that juxtaposition of people together on stage or on film is really important. Where people are placed is very important because it conveys meaning. And so um, I think of that with, um, they always said, you know, you, when you're playing in a scene, you don't want to get too close to someone. You think that you want to get really close to someone because it will give you power over that person, but it actually doesn't. Because once you get too close to someone, there's nothing you can do. You can either, and I had an acting teacher, once you get too close to someone, you can either kiss them or hit them. And that's, there are only two options. So if you want more power as an actor, you stay, keep your distance because you have, more, you have more power and more distance. But so all that to say, you know, I think about those kinds of things because of my background in theater as a director, as an actor, about where, where bodies are in space, what is happening throughout space. So um, I say, yes, I'm spatial. And so this, um, this image that this one professor gave was so helpful for me in understanding this concept of the people of Israel and the people of God who are the church. These two houses, and how do they relate to Jesus? Well, he described it as being God, um, you know, all of the people of the earth, you know, they're all the people of the earth through Adam, all the descendants of Adam and Eve, and God then whittles them down to um, Abraham. All the descendants of Abraham are chosen because Abraham is chosen. Then he whittles it down to um, Jacob. Well, first he chooses Esau over, or excuse me, not, he chooses um, Isaac, and then he chooses Jacob over Esau. So Jacob is the chosen one. All those descendants of Jacob are part of God's chosen people. But you see throughout the Old Testament scriptures that he's whittling it down to a remnant, almost like that army in Judges that Gideon fights with. Remember, God says, no, send them away. No, send them away. No, the ones who drink water like this, those are the only ones who are going to fight. And it was down to a fraction of the original army. And it was because God was then going to show his greatness and his glory through those few. So we see this with the chosen people of God, that it's being whittled down. And then that, that um, chosenness resides primarily in Jesus Christ himself. He is the heir of the promises that are made to Abraham and to Jacob. So Jesus as the heir of the chosen people, he is the true Israel. And we see it throughout the New Testament. The way the New Testament understands Jesus is as the true Israel, the true chosen one. We see it in um, Matthew chapter 2 when Jesus is coming out of Egypt, when his parents went into Egypt. Matthew says, well, it's because he would then be called out of, G out of Egypt, that those words of Hosea, out of Egypt, I called my son would apply to Jesus himself. Hosea is talking about the people of Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. And Matthew is using those words of Hosea to uh, refer them to Jesus, saying Jesus is God's son. Jesus is the true Israel. So if that house, if Moses is a servant in that house, and Jesus is the inheritor of the house, the true house, the house itself, the son, um, the heir apparent, then he is also just, he, that analogy is broken down, he's also the founder and the builder of another house. Because it talks about God being the builder of the house in verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. 
But just before that, it has said, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Here's our analogy. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So Jesus is the, um, the builder of the house, and God is the builder of the house. Wait a second. What is this author saying? He's saying that Jesus is God himself that Jesus is the Son of God, and as the Son of God, he, of course, is more glorious than Moses, the servant. So in that very ontology, the author is making this argument, Jesus is greater than Moses. What we're going to see is that um, then throughout this exhortation, it continues to be related to Jesus and Moses. And if you were to go home and read these verses, basically this whole argument from the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4 is based on um, this quotation that the author uses from Psalm 95. So I'm just going to read this quotation because he repeats it. He quotes it, and then he quotes it about three more times. Therefore, and what's really cool is about inspiration of Holy Scripture, he says, the author of the, to the, letter, um, of the letter to the Hebrews says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then later on he says, as God says through David. It's a really interesting um, uh, argument for the inspiration of Scripture right there, that Scripture is both God-breathed and written down by men. It's both human and divine. It is inspired by God. Um, the Holy Spirit says, and David says, and it's the same words that he's quoting. It's very interesting. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where, you put your fa- where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my, na- my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This exhortation goes on to say, don't lose heart. Don't, um, don't uh, lose your, your grip on this hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Um, uh, we are his house if we hold fast our confidence. See, I have that great big if, which is troublesome as Christians, because we know our assurance of, of salvation. We know that our salvation is sure through faith in Jesus Christ. He is saying persevere so that, you would, so that you would make it so clear, so that you would know without a doubt that your salvation is sure. Your salvation is sure through faith in Jesus Christ. What is the exhortation, the content of the exhortation, is essentially not do this, do this, do this, and I'm going to show you why it's not do this, do this, do this, but it's rather, rather keep on believing. Keep on believing what you first believed. Keep on believing. Keep on believing. Keep on believing. Um, and he talks about um, he talks about this in a, a lot of different uh, words. He says, "Hold fast, do not harden your heart, and enter into that rest." Um, the do not hardening our hearts. He talks about this hardening of the heart as being um, somehow this relationship between disobedience and disbelief. Um, and he talks about the, the Israelites in the desert. That they're, um, do you remember that they? Do you remember what happens? What, what this whole entering into God's rest is about in Psalm 95? Do you remember the incident? It alludes. He's alluding specifically to this incident in Numbers 14. Do you remember what happens? They go. This is this is really the Sunday school question, right? And the answer is not Jesus. I just have to tell you that. <laughs> I always say that because I've been in Sunday school all my life, and the and the good little girl in me always wants. 
wants to get it right. But the, um, the, <laughs> the, essentially, I don't know if you remember, but as they're in the desert, as they're about to enter into the promised land, do you remember that um, Caleb and, jo- and Joshua go into the promised land, go into Israel, scope it out, when they come back, they describe all sorts of things. They describe the food that they see, the grapes, and, the, and they bring some of the grapes back. And then they talk about the men that they see. They're big. <laughs> These great big guys. We're going to go in and take this land from them. And the people hear this description, and they lose heart. And they say, we're not going. We are not going in. We're not going in. We're not going to go up into this land to take possession of it, even though the Lord has told us to do this. And they're, um, they, they again persist in this rebellion. There were previous rebellions throughout the desert and grumbling, lots of grumbling against the Lord. But essentially this rebellion, yes, it's caused by sin and it's a complete and perfect example of human nature at, at work. But the root of their sin is unbelief, disbelief. And this is just like that, ent- that beginning of the book of Romans. Remember um, Paul carries through all of these horrible um, things that go on in the world and he says that God gives people over to those sinful actions because of their disbelief in God. They don't believe that God exists. Well here the Israelites in that desert moment um, they had forgotten about God's salvation, right? God had brought them out of slavery. God had miraculously brought them through the Red Sea, the parting of the sea. God had miraculously provided water for them in the desert provided bread for them in the desert, provided even meat for them in the desert, allowed their sandals not to even wear out during those 40 years in the desert. If he could do all those things, couldn't he then um, protect them as they were going into this promised land that he said he would do? He said he would do it. He promised, and he has shown himself to be faithful in his promises. So um, the, the hardening of the heart here is really a description of disbelief, disbelieving in God's promises out of fear, and fear taking grip, and causing those Israelites to turn back from entering into this great rest, this promised land that God had promised to give them. And um, essentially what what, um, the author is doing is he's setting up this comparison between the people in the wilderness and these early Christians who were tempted to do the same, who were tempted to say, no, it's really not worth it. It's really not worth it to keep on believing in Jesus um, because we're going to lose, uh, we'll lose our property. We might even lose our lives. Just like those Israelites earlier had said, no, it's really not worth it to, um, to go into the promised land because we might die. These people are really big and scary and we're scared. They were forgetting how faithful God had been in the past. And this author is saying, don't forget. Don't forget how faithful God has been. Don't forget. Don't go back to the former ways of doing things. Don't go back into slavery. And um, he's again, he's likening this first covenant to the second covenant. Um, that that generation in the wilderness, they died, right? Not one of them saw the promised land. Even Moses himself didn't see the promised land. And the author to the letter of the Hebrews is saying that, saying that. Um, and essentially what he's saying is that the covenant that led them into this, disob- into this disbelief, that could not cure their disbelief, um, was a lesser covenant, was not, um, was, uh, was uh, not enough. 
He's saying, don't go back to that lesser covenant because it's not enough. We need Jesus because it's only through Jesus that we can then have faith to enter into the rest that God has prepared for us. And that rest, what is that rest? Well, he, um, what is that rest and when does it happen? He keeps saying today. There's this really cool thing about the psalm. The psalm, okay, sorry, I got really, I'm spatial and I'm also, I love space or time. I'm spa- space and time. But when you think about the timing of scripture, so um, the Holy Spirit through David is saying these words in Psalm 95. Um, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, today. But he's saying that long after the Israelites harden their hearts, but he's pointing back, pointing back to that and saying, that day, um, they, they harden their hearts, but it's still today. There's still time. Today, don't harden your hearts. And yet he's speaking long before Jesus would even come. And um, yet that today still extends through Jesus's life and ministry, and it's opened up in a whole different way, obviously, through Jesus, and that's what the author is saying, but it applies to us today as well, that today extends, um, remember, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day, like Peter says, so um, this lengthening of today, what is today, but it's this present age, this present age, now is the time to believe in Jesus Christ. And um, that today is extended. Now is the time. Now is the time. And now is the time for what? Now is the time for the rest. We have rest in this age, and we have rest in the next age. What is this rest that he's talking about, this Sabbath rest? Well, he goes on towards the, um, towards the end of our passage for today in chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. So then... There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. He's talking about those seven days of creation, how God created all those seven days, and then he rested on the seventh day. And he is saying that that rest is for those who believe in Jesus Christ. That we, as we rest in him, through faith in him, we no longer have to justify ourselves by our actions. We are not measured by what we do or how well we do it. But we are measured by Jesus Christ and how well he has done it. How well he has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And how he will continue to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so that resting is something that is available now, today, in this present age, and for eternity. And does that mean that we are then, does that mean that we are in our bedroom slippers and bathrobes all day? <laughs> oh, that's a lovely prospect. But no, it talks about, um, talks about God working. Um, well, the, in John, we're t- in my study on John, we're talking about the Sabbath. Why is Jesus accused of healing on the Sabbath, and what does that mean? And you know this, Catherine. But there's this sense in which it was believed that God, because that seventh day, the sun still rose and then set, God is still working sort of on the seventh day, even though he's resting on the seventh day. So what's going on? Well, God is, um, and there, someone once put it so clearly, that God is um, perpetually at work and yet perpetually at rest. That there is a restfulness that characterizes every single one of his actions. And that is the kind of rest that we enter into. 
that no, it doesn't mean we're sitting in our bathrobe eating bonbons. It means that every action that we undertake is one that we undertake with um, peace in our hearts and with security, knowing that the outcome is in God's hand and that the outcome will not affect our salvation. Even as we, even as, and that's that act of faith, isn't it? That we do, and we just leave the results up to God. But um, yes, we, we, we um, strive, we, we go forward, we, um, we do the things that we're called to do, we, we um, pursue wonderful, good things, and yet we do them with the knowledge that our salvation is secure through faith in Jesus Christ. So, amen for that. Um, and let's pray, and then you can ask me any questions you want. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have entered through that veil in the curtain, that you are our great high priest who knows our weaknesses and yet is um, and is tempted in every way as we are and yet is without sin. We thank you, Lord, that you are our great high priest. And so by faith we say yes um, to your work that is complete, um, even, as we, even as we live out our lives in work and in rest. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would bring to us that rest that comes through faith in you, um, that rest that comes through hearing your call, um, your call to be justified by you and not by anything that we do, your call to rest in your good work. And so we do that right now. We say, yes, let your work be for me. Uh, let me enter into that rest. Through your name we pray, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Any questions? I covered a lot of ground, and I didn't give you a lot of time for it. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. Do you have any questions? I'm just, today, this morning, uh, you're talking about the willing now, and I've heard you give the instruction before, but it's so, it was like, aha, that explains the argument that people have against predestination. Mm-hmm. Yep. He's whittled it down to just Jesus. Just Jesus. And so it's not who's excluded, it's who's gonna. Yeah. And it's also. Right. Yeah, it's through faith in Jesus Christ that we are chosen. That our our chosenness, our election, through faith in Jesus. Well, He is the chosen one. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm so glad. He's the chosen one. So all yeah. of this talk about are you chosen, are you not chosen? Yeah. Doesn't matter. Jesus is the chosen one. <laughs> Believe in him. <laughs> yeah. Then, then we are. <laughs> uh, well, th- there's also one of the things that's so wonderful about Hebrews, and I didn't really have space today to talk about it, but here I'm just going to give you a little taste of it, that it talks about sharing in Christ, sharing in our heavenly calling. You who share, it's in chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, we share in a heavenly, heavenly calling, and it says later um, we, um, that we share in Christ himself um, in verse 14 of chapter 3. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, that we, um, through faith, we are united with Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And there's that sharing so just as we share, we share in his chosenness through faith. 
We share in his death and his resurrection. We are united to him and united with one another. It talks about that too, that idea of the house that you were talking about, Robert, that we, yes, we are the house that's built by Jesus. The scripture talks about that elsewhere. Um, there's that sense in which we go together. Together we are God's house. So, any other questions? I know. I'm sorry, and I didn't give you. I didn't give you a lot of. I didn't give you. Well, this is the problem when you only have five weeks to talk about the Book of Hebrews. Oh yeah. You've got to kind of like hold on to your hat. We're giving you. I'm giving you the broad overview of the book, but someday I'd love to go back because there's so there's so much to chew on in it. I'll give you another little tidbit too. Just that that um, sharing. I'm talking about that sharing in Christ, and then he he says also, um, exhort one another. And I think of that just like I think of that running the race outside, you know, that marathon that's being run around the city today. And I was, I was in um, cross, I was, believe it or not, I can't, I can't, I have a horrible, like, sense. I'm not a bad endurer, but when it comes to running, if I get, once my heart rate gets up too high, I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to go walk right now. <laughs> I'm done walking. Um, I'm going to walk. And when I was in high school, I, for some reason, decided to be on the cross-country track team. I was a sprinter, not a cross-country person. And so what would happen, we had just moved to our new town, and the cross-country team, I'm just looking at the clock, the cross-country cross country team would go out from our high school, run around the town, and come back to the high school. Invariably, I got out of breath. I had to stop. I had to walk because I wasn't in sh- as in shape as all these other girls. So they'd be out running around the town. <laughs> town, I'd get lost and I'd have to walk back to the high school and I would come back, it would, you know, school ends at 3, they would run back so they'd get back at about 3.30 and then, or 4 maybe, and I wouldn't be back at school until like 5.30. I'd be out walking around this new town that I just moved to and I'd, you know, but I thought about that and isn't it true that when you have a running partner, you end up running, you end up running much further, much um, faster, much longer than you would otherwise. And that's part of what the author to the letter of the Hebrews is talking about, exhorting one another to hold fast, exhorting one another to stay in it, exhorting one another to have faith and to believe in God's promises as they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Go in peace.